Hello and welcome to this Euroactive uh, debate on lessons from COVID-19. How can we make our health systems more resilient? I'm Brian McGuire. Our event today is supported by Philips. You can follow the debate at hashtag EA Debates and please tweet your comments using this hashtag. Our social media team will interact with you there. And to ask questions, go to the chat section and use the ask button. Please, uh, if you can, tell us who you are and where you're from as well. It just makes it a little bit more interesting for us. Now, the COVID-19 public health crisis highlighted that the EU and member states must be better prepared for pandemics and other cross-border health threats. The pandemic revealed a serious lack of medical stockpiles and the vulnerability of EU supply chains. In her 2020 State of the Union address, European uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen called on Europe to draw lessons from the current crisis and build a European health union. In addition, a Europe fit for the digital age is now one of the Commission's six political priorities for 2019 to 2024. And as part of this, the EU is working towards the digital trans transformation of health and care. But what else can the EU and member states do to make our health systems more resilient? In this Euractive virtual conference, we'll discuss lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic and how our health systems can adapt and become more resilient. We have an excellent panel uh, with us today. Let me just introduce uh, to you uh, Wolfgang Philipp. He's the head of unit at uh, the Health Emergency Response and Vaccines at DG Sante at the European Commission. We'll be joined a little later by Jitte Gutland, member of the European Parliament uh, from the Envy Committee. Yanis uh, uh, Vardar he's a member of the European Economic and Social Committee and president of the European Disability Forum. Uh, Genya Dana, she's the head of health and healthcare platform at the World Economic Forum. Uh, Iska Reich, uh, she's the executive vice president of Europe and Canada for AstraZeneca. And Jan Willem uh, Schegrund, he's the head of government and public affairs at uh, Philips. Excellent. Good to have all of you with us uh, today. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you for uh, 60 seconds uh, just to kick off and, and hear your key message. And then we'll get straight into the discussion. And uh, our audience don't have to wait until uh, later on to send in their questions. You can send in the questions at any time. And we'll put those uh, to our panel throughout the discussion as well. Uh, Wolfgang, you want to kick off with your 60 seconds? Thank you very much. And uh, many thanks uh, for the opportunity, opportunity uh, to participate in this panel. Um, perhaps you give me 65 seconds. Uh, basically, what we have seen is uh, that a lot, lot of uh, a lot needs to be done uh, at the end of the day to strengthen the EU, uh, the EU health security framework as one of the elements uh, uh, to um, make our healthcare systems also more resilient. So you mentioned already the uh, digital transformation and innovation. Uh, that's one of the elements that we need to look into. Ensuring EU production of medic medical and pharmaceutical products is also crucial, as we have seen. Uh, but this must be complemented by a strong uh, uh, push and pull in research and development of innovative uh, products. And uh, to this end, uh, the pharmaceutical strategy of the EU, for example, is a good opportunity to equip Europe with the regulatory policy tools uh, to make it a hub for innovation and strengthen the pharmaceutical supply chain. So this is critical to ensure new technologies can truly serve the purpose um, for better health outcomes and by this health systems. Let me just uh, say a couple of words on the uh, European Health Union uh, now and as of tomorrow onwards. Uh, HERA, the new health emergency preparedness and response authority, uh, will uh, be in a position hopefully to start uh, working towards equipping the EU and its member states with tools and mechanisms to anticipate cross-border, serious cross-border health threats and identify uh, effective uh, responses. We will focus on medical countermeasures 
through the vaccines and biotics medical equipment, but also uh, other things like PPE, uh, as well as um, uh, a strong intelligence gathering uh, function. So basically providing a, an end-to-end -end solution uh, down the road uh, towards stockpiling and distribution also of uh, uh, medical countermeasures. So that is only one element that comes with a couple of uh, that comes with a couple of uh, uh, other proposals. For example, strengthening the, uh, the role of the ECDC and the mandate of uh, EMA, and uh, a, a revised uh, a piece of legislation to uh, strengthen the, um, um, the response, uh, the coordination response to serious cross-border health threats. So HERA is one of these uh, one of these elements. It comes with uh, an investment of uh, or budget of 6 billion euros uh, for the next years. And uh, we hope that uh, whatever HERA delivers, uh, if HERA delivers to its mission, uh, will contribute to support also the resilience of the health systems. Um, we will rely massively on uh, uh, on existing EU programs and will be complement these operations uh, also uh, uh, through other EU programs, uh, such as the recovery resilience resilience facility, uh, react EU cohesion funds, uh, the InvestEU program, uh, just to name uh, a very few of them. So we are confident that uh, with uh, a stronger commitment and a stronger cooperation, uh, HERA has a huge potential to ensure better preparedness and response against health threats uh, while boosting innovation and uh, improving healthcare systems resilience um, uh, from that angle. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very good. 65 seconds, Wolfgang. Appreciate okay. that. Thank you. Okay, uh, we're still waiting for you to join us. Yanis, uh, you want to go for your 60 seconds? Th thank you for the invitation. The health system is a public good, and it has to be a priority for the European Union and the member states in making investments to make this public good available to all in a very inclusive way. A resilient health system is not only defined by its efficiency of obtaining medicine, tests, vaccination, and distributing them. The way they are distributed, the way our health systems, our hospitals, our medical professionals include and treat those most at risk also defines resilience. Resilience in our health systems goes hand in hand with a strong involvement of civil society organizations and citizens in the way it is planned, implemented, monitored, and making it a real public good, especially in periods like the one we are going through. Thank you, Yanis. Excellent. Uh, Genya, over to you, 60 seconds. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be with you from the World Economic Forum. We are an international organization that really excels at bringing together stakeholders from industry, from uh, public figures, from civil society, from academia, 
and really surfacing the, the toughest questions impacting society and economy. And during the COVID-19 crisis, we have been doing just that and wanted to share with you that from our COVID action platform, which we launched last uh, March of 2020, really designed to bring together world leaders to understand the situation as it was unfolding on the ground, we started to work with some of our partners, really thinking about the sustainability and the resilience of healthcare systems in a post-COVID world. We knew we would get there someday. We will get there someday. But what we are doing together with a number of our partners is really looking at how do we bring together the right types of partnerships, uh, the resources, the convenings and access and collaboration with public figures to build those systems so that they can withstand future crises. This is not the only crises that will come uh, come the way of health and healthcare. Um, we have many others coming down the pipeline in, in AMR, antimicrobial resistance, climate emergencies, and others that we probably don't know about yet. But what we want to do really is be that collaborative space where we can bring together the right actors to build resilience, to withstand those future crises, and the sustainability of these systems so that they can improve population health over the longer term. Thank you. Danya, thank you. Iskra, over to you. Thank you, Brian. And it's a real pleasure today alongside with the esteemed panel. So uh, let me start by saying that uh, shortly after the onset of the pandemic, as so many of you and so many other stakeholders, we realized that AstraZeneca, that this crisis will definitely have a deep and, and long-lasting impact on the health system in Europe, but also across uh, across the globe. And it was very clear to us from the beginning that it is not really enough to respond only to the immediate challenge, but that we really need to bring the, the other important stakeholders together to find a long-term solution. And one of the examples is the one that you just heard from Jenya about the uh, Partnership for Healthcare System Sustainability and Resilience, when uh, when we were happy and proud to partner together to, together with, uh, with many others. And I think when we started that project and many other initiatives, our objective was from the beginning to really kind of reimagine the future of health. And we also realize that there is no way to do it alone. So the partnership and private-public partnership, bringing government, academia, science, and, and the industry together is probably the way to go. And having said that, in AstraZeneca, we are very pleased to see a lot of good initiatives that are very encouraging, and some of them were mentioned today, like the new European pharmaceutical strategy being the one, HERA being the other one, uh, EU for health, or the European health data space. I, we do believe in AstraZeneca that these initiatives brought from the Commission and Parliament are absolutely critical for the for the resilient and resilience and sustainability of the healthcare. And to end the the the, the, the my opening uh, points, I want to highlight the three key pillars that we see in AstraZeneca as being absolutely critical to drive the resilience and sustainability of the healthcare systems. We must invest in into innovation, and I do believe we all learn it very clearly from the from the COVID-19. We need to reprioritize disease prevention and early disease detection to make sure 
that we don't uh, uh, kill the healthcare system and that we ease the burden of the of the healthcare system across the globe. And last but not least, encourage further cross collaboration and cross sector collaboration and partnership between private and public uh, public stakeholders. Only together we can really make sure that healthcare systems across will be resilient uh, for uh, the new crisis and sustainable on the longer run. Uh, Jan Willem, over to you, 60 seconds. Thank you. Well, during the COVID crisis, we saw that health systems were crumbling and broken, just like you know, a leaky roof reveals um, the holes in the roof when it starts to rain. Um, and so, but we also saw that there was an incredible resi resilience and people were teaming up uh, in partnership to address it. Uh, I want to share five lessons that we uh, want to take into the resilience of the healthcare system going forward as a medtech company, as Philips. First is, you know, resilience starts before the crisis. So just like you repair your roof before it rains, we need to fix the healthcare system before the next crisis starts. The EU is about to spend billions of euros on healthcare. Um, let's think before we spend it. Let's think what roof we want to build. Secondly, we must make our populations healthier, as was already alluded to. You know, it's so important, it was so important during the crisis to understand the health of the populations. And it was very worrying to see so many people in ill health. We should do something about that. Thirdly, we need to reorganize healthcare around the patient, not around the hospital anymore. So we're going to have to transform the way we deliver healthcare services, redesigning it into a distributed care model. Uh, fourthly, um, we should keep the power of partnerships. We did tremendous things during the crisis in public-private partnerships. Let's keep that, let's build on that, and let's build the trust and the confidence in each other to uh, rally around a common cause. And finally, we really need to accelerate uh, the digitization that we so much accelerated during the COVID crisis and uh, complete that, uh, that journey because a resilient healthcare system is going to be a digital healthcare system. Thank you. Thank you, Jan Willem. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Ayit is with us also. How are you? Can you hear us, baby? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm sorry. Good. No, I can no hear you. You're, just, uh, you're right on cue. So uh, 60 seconds just for your opening remarks and uh, your key points. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much and thank you for having this timely event on the important lessons that we can learn from the pandemic. Um, I think we are at this moment actually in the beginning of drawing the, the lessons from the pandemic. Some of uh, us uh, have been eager to do it uh, also during the pandemic, but I really believe, as been said by the last in, uh, intervention, that we actually need also to take some time and we need to understand uh, what has been happening and the pandemic is not over even if uh, we are in a much better place today with almost uh, 70 percent having their first dose of vaccine um, in the priorities that I think should be absolutely necessary is, of course, that we need to be better prepared for a common for a future crisis. And um, to, to do so, uh, I believe uh, we need also to focus on the preventive work uh, to make sure that we don't have a system where 
many of the diseases that could have been avoided or limited um, is um, public threats today. Uh, so we need to be more preventive in how we work together in the European Union and also in the member states. And there are many many eras here where we need to to focus on the future and that is of course both the causes of big diseases that is in the population really troublesome uh, like smoking drinking uh, pesticides uh, these kind of roots uh, of uh, of problems uh, for health but also of course to make sure that we have resilience when it comes to our authorities that can prevent the diseases from being spread and I think we need to make sure that we have better muscles in our authorities both EMA of course uh, uh, ECDC but also uh, the the coming HERA uh, that I would like to to give a bigger focus to than the Commission has uh, done uh, and then I would also uh, like to mention here in my first intervention that um, I think also that uh, we need to have a better uh, database for uh, access to medicines. And this is something where uh, my group is very eager to, to make sure that the European Union is much stronger in the future. But I will stop there for now and come back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, we've set out a, a, a huge uh, range of, of, of topics. Let's uh, try and put these uh, in a, a framework as well. So uh, let's talk about the speed of ambition, the possibility for change as a consequence of what we've learned through COVID. And what I mean by this is, uh, you, if you use the, the Dutch, for example, they, there was a lot of hesitancy about integrating medical uh, data before uh, the COVID crisis. And uh, literally within uh, four weeks, um, of the emergency uh, being uh, evaluated, the data barriers uh, evaporated and the integration of uh, certain types of medical data happened very quickly. Just one example, but this happened across Europe to a large degree as well. So the, the ambition to get stuff done quickly is there when we understand uh, the, the, the moment that, that we're passing through. Are we able to keep this kind of momentum uh, going this, that we have seen from COVID, these partnerships happening quickly, this organic uh, movement to, to solve problems and a more, much more positive approach to problem solving. Uh, Wolfgang, can we keep this pace? I do hope so. I think there's a lot of, a lot of things that need to be fixed uh, and need to become operational. Uh, we see at least at the European level um, quite a number of initiatives um, under development, I mean, HERA is going to be operational, not operational, it's going to be operational from next year onwards, but HERA is going to be um, um, a reality, uh, basically, as from tomorrow onwards. So we are in the full uh, transition phase here. Um, but uh, we also see a lot of uh, good uh, angles uh, touching on many of the calls that were coming up, up now from the, uh, from the, from the speakers. Uh, which are covered by uh, initiatives uh, looking at the uh, health data space or looking at the uh, pharmaceutical strategies strategy uh, where many relevant uh, uh, areas uh, should be fixed uh, in the uh, coming months and years. And I do hope that we keep the speed. We see a lot of speed uh, also in many of the member states uh, to uh, come up with, uh, uh, um, with lean systems um, might it be on the regulatory side, might it be on the uh, way of how to work uh, together between 
between the uh, between the needs and the supply sides. Um, we see a lot of uh, movement there as well. So I do hope that uh, that this will at least uh, be one of the positive outcomes of uh, uh, of this uh, dramatic pandemic. Thank you. Jan Willem, you mentioned that I think it was the, we need to keep the power of partnerships as well. And you're coming from the, the private sector. There's a different dynamic in terms of process decision making and, and risk analysis as well. You, how do you see uh, the public institutions at the member state level, the European Union level, uh, progressing over the next years? And if you see bottlenecks, what needs to be done to, to overcome those? Yeah, I think what we saw during the crisis is that suddenly everybody wanted to talk to each other because we were all you know, unsure what to do next. So there was incredible confidence in it. I, I want to illustrate it by one thing that somebody at the WHO said to me, who was managing the pandemic and was engaging with like 50 uh, medtech companies to address the need for PPE, for diagnostics, for medical equipment. And he said, wow, I didn't realize it was going to be so easy to work with the private sector. So there are all these prejudices about public-private collaboration uh, that hopefully have vanished uh, to a large extent during the crisis. And um, we see a bigger interest now to, to have country dialogues with all the partners involved, including the civil society, of course, and help to design that healthcare system that you know, will make it more resilient. Uh, and I think it's important to illustrate it once more again. We, can we keep the pace? You know, there is a pace outside there, which is the digitization of society, uh, which, uh, which is going on. If we don't keep up with that pace, we're going to be investing into silos. We're going to be investing in the old analog ways and we set ourselves up for failure. So we need to come together and to understand how we write this digital transformation across entire society um, to, uh, to take the right decisions and invest in the right resilience. And I think that that common understanding uh, will drive further public, private and civil society engagement at the country level in the coming months. Thank you. Yes, you talk about a preventative approach to managing European healthcare, and you know this isn't just a matter of people not getting sick, but we have finite health budgets as well. And and after COVID, we're likely to be heading towards the road of some form of austerity as well. So our budgets become even tighter. So the preventive dimension becomes more critical, and the digital side to that would seem at least to offer some uh, capacity uh, to be more efficient at, at managing uh, preventive care. What I mean by that, for example, uh, smoking cessation, uh, just one example, you mentioned smoking and, and, and drinking, um, diabetes management, things like this. So where the digital dimension is there, there is a, a, a healthcare partner involved uh, with the patient or, or, or with the, the, the citizen. You know, the, the likelihood of stopping smoking, of, of managing diet, these preventive dimensions, which are so so critical, that increases. Do you see this happening? Do you see this digital dimension helping with preventive care without massive budget increases across Europe? Yita? Yeah, but we need to focus both on the uh, cooperation between our authorities and be prepared for the cross-border threats and the things that we often speak about when we want to draw lessons from the pandemic. But uh, in parallel to that, we need to also focus on the long-term health threat that is not coming cross-border, but it's a threat for the f from uh, not acting now and uh, uh, putting uh, the, f the future in risk. And I think uh, during the pandemic, um, 
we will uh, we, there is a reason to talk more about this now than maybe ever before both because many of these threats that is long term for the uh, humanity uh, has um, increased during the pandemic people drink more people uh, stay home they don't socialize because they uh, were forced to do so not to drink obviously but uh, th there was not activities out in the society to to socialize around and i think this is something that will be very obvious in uh, the upcoming years that we have an health uh, uh, Oh, I don't find the word that I would want to use, but uh, we will in the future uh, have a problem that we didn't uh, prevent things today. And uh, it will also be uh, the pandemic itself that has uh, had big impact on health, like the young generation who were not uh, allowed to be at their sport activities, maybe stayed home from school during longer period, um, uh, unemployment because of the of the pandemic. Many of these things will also come as a boomerang effect a couple of years uh, from now, if not already. So this is two uh, long-term health threats that our system needs to, to face. And then it's about the discussion that most people uh, uh, hold in their uh, in the current now, and that is, of course, to prevent the, the cross-border threats and be better prepared for the next pandemic. And there, I think we need to focus, of course, on better and stronger authorities among other things and i think here the proposal is not good enough from the commission it's too small it's not independent it's not the 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 bigger uh, agency that we wanted to be similar to barda uh, it is more uh, something internal in the commission uh, i'm not happy with that uh, i think uh, ema needs also better preparedness and uh, bigger muscles and make sure that we continue to stand against all them who think that we can have uh, maybe vaccines without having the secure process that's going through EMA. And uh, I think this is really important also for the future that EMA is still able to do that. Uh, yeah, I could go on, but it was long. No, we took a bit more detail about uh, Herabarda and Hema uh, just a little bit later on. Yanis, uh, you raised your hand. Uh, do you want to make a comment or response there? Uh, yes, I would like to make a few comments. And I will make those comments without uh, having any intention whatsoever to downgrade the Commission's uh, package on the European Health Union. In my opinion, the issue has to be put at the level it should be. It is a very highly political issue. Many of you mentioned to keep the pace or to keep the momentum. I put a very strong question mark there. If there is a pace or if there is a momentum. Let me take you back to July last year, when at the European Council, they negotiated the next generation EU and the European uh, uh, resilience, the recovery resilience facility. And they were trying to cut the budget. And one of the cuts 
one of the main cuts was a grid in the health area. And that was in the very middle of the pandemic. So, in my opinion, there is no political will to go beyond and over what the pandemic found the health systems to be in, meaning after many years of austerity, after many years of putting uh, very low, if at all, priority to investing in public health systems. And that's why the preparedness and the response, both at the UN national level, member state level, was very, very problematic, to say the least. And we know this uh, if we look at also the, the loss of lives, the loss of lives that can be compared only with the Second World War. Huh? It, so many lives in one and a half year only during the war. This can happen. So the response at the European level is a response, but the ambition has to be greater. The investment has to be greater in the public health systems. Okay. Well, let this me just is the lesson we need to learn. Thank you. Uh, you you began by saying you didn't want to diminish anything which the European Commission was doing at the moment. Wolfgang can answer for the Commission, but isn't in terms of where we are today and where we were two years ago, you know, the, the capacity to discuss a health union two years ago was resisted roundly by by many member states as well. And yet today that's not even discussed. It's a question of how we work but, together, how, but, how we move forward in that. But that's why that's why I said it is a very highly political issue. Okay, thank you. Uh, Genya, in terms of what you see globally as well, and, and are we in Europe, does, is it necessary for Europeans to go alone in this, or do global partnerships really matter? And you know, when we look at uh, the, the, the cross-continental approach to this, the United States where you and I are both residing at the moment, the, the dimensions of this policy discussion in terms of individual rights and healthcare and the, the ability of the state to even inform, never mind enforce, a public healthcare approach is very different from most of Europe. You know, Latin America, Brazil, again, a very mixed uh, approach there. Um, Asia, some countries exceptionally good, others uh, the complete opposite. You know, from a global perspective, should we be thinking of a partnership there or should we just focus locally on, on Europe? So I am very convinced that the only way to be making our way through the current situation and being prepared for the future is through global partnerships. Absolutely, we cannot go it alone. Um, I think the the key message that we have always talked about during this period is that no one is safe until everyone is safe. And so how do you actually achieve that? It's through partnerships and through collaborations. And at the World Economic Forum, this is precisely what we've been 
spending all of our time doing is being a place for those collaborations to take place. And I think that in terms of um, national responses or um, local responses and how that fits within the international context, that we are uh, we have some common things, common themes that we can uh, that we can learn from. And I wanted to just highlight some of the work that we've been doing when it comes to the Partnership for Health System Sustainability and Resilience. And that I think um, is a is a practical uh, piece of work that we've been uh, bringing together our partners around and working with uh, organizations like the London School of Economics around to really understand no matter what your healthcare system is, um, there are there are components of it. Um, that we can look at no matter where you are in the world. How are how is your your healthcare system governed? Um, what is the funding like when it comes to your systems? And what are your workforce um, issues and preparations? You know how well are you integrating different medicines and technologies? And how well are you positioning the delivery of your services? So what we've been doing within the forum is thinking about some of these very common elements um, that lead to better resilience and sustainability of health and healthcare systems. And gathering the evidence uh, by going out and working with partners on the ground and evaluating at a preliminary level to sharpen up our, our framework for evaluation. You know, how are systems doing? in countries around the world. Not to really compare and contrast, but to really learn lessons about uh, you know, the, the importance of moving from centralized hospital-centric systems to decentralized systems where we can reach people out in the community to ensuring um, that we're taking care of our workforce issues, making sure that we are understanding that our workforces are aging, um, that we're over-reliant maybe on staff from other parts of the world. And really together through this partnership on health system sustainability and resilience, which is one of the many initiatives that we have at the forum, thinking about globally, how do we build up the capacity for these systems okay. to be able to absorb, adapt to, learn and recover from crises? Thank you. Iskra, just to, to build on that, on what Kenya said, you know, what are the, your key observations about the, the necessary planning that needs to be done at a, a European and global level to make this happen, to make this resilience uh, occur. And you know, if we can talk a little bit about the political dimension of this, the, the different political dynamics, as largely as a consequence of disinformation and the more authoritarian leaders who may not buy into what we would seem to be a, a necessary approach to uh, public health care uh, because it suits their, their political narrative not to, to do so. So how do you build in these partnerships across borders, which are uh, financially efficient and uh, efficient from a healthcare perspective as well. So be before I, I, I try to summarize a few, few critical sure. success factors, I, I think it's really important to say that uh, I, I do believe, and we in AstraZeneca are very uh, positive in saying that what we learn in, in a crisis should stay. So we do believe that the partnership and the way how we build platforms, and again, few of them were mentioned here today, is, re is the mechanism that can stay and can actually provide the value that goes across all the healthcare system stakeholders. When I look back, what are the kind of critical areas, how to build that platforms and what is needed to build it, 
I would say that there are probably three themes that uh, that emerged. One is that you need to kind of align around the, 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 the agenda or ambition you share. And I think in a crisis, it was probably much easier, if I may say, because the, the, the issue and the barrier and the hurdle, hurdle was very obvious to everybody. And, you know, let me give you an example. If you want to, to, to release the, the, the stress and the pressure on the healthcare system, you want to make sure that you use the technology needed to keep the patients being treated or maintain their treatment remotely. And the whole topic of the remote care and how you bring the, the private partners, the startup, the technology solution, medical data, and the hospitals and the government together to build this uh, in 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 a in an urgent way was uh, was was quite uh, impressive. And it, there are there are number of proofs of that that was been done in France, in UK. If you look at the Europe specifically, so I think that kind of on that notion, thinking how we can do that in the post-COVID, keeping the same partners around the table, if you want, having a clear objective in front uh, and then making sure that we do it in the by using technology and, and doing it in with a sense of urgency but to be able to do that trust is probably the second critical part of the success i think that we we need to stop uh, uh, thinking uh, in the kind of in the in the functions and the boxes uh, i think there is uh, we need to accept that there is nothing wrong of bringing public and private together around the table uh, but we also need to make sure that we really build the long-term trust between the partners and making sure that we all go along the way uh, when we set up the, the, the partnership, uh, as, as the one mentioned. And then I think there is a third dimension that goes, and I think uh, there, was, um, uh, there, there was a mention of that today uh, uh, around the prevention. Prevention is important, but I think the, the, the topic that really emerged through the COVID is really how you ensure early diagnostic and the better treatment of the chronic diseases. Because that was the theme that really emerged, giving the the pressure that the healthcare system had, and kind of can we be much smarter as a, as a health in a healthcare system as a whole to think about how we can increase the diagnostic and what we what we can do today to make sure that that had an impact again in the new in the some new crisis or simply to maintain the sustainability of the of the system and i i think that it's very clear to everybody that as a consequences of covid 19 there is a huge backlog and basically there is a uh, the statistics that's showing that many avoidable morbidities or mortalities is going to happen as a consequences because simply the healthcare uh, systems or hospitals were not available available for the patients uh, for the any maintain maintenance treatment i think being smart around that and making sure that we put uh, the again academia government and the, the industry together around okay. the table to make sure the, we, we 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 solve for that would be an important third factor right. in my view Thank you. So basically, a clear shared objective, trust and uh, prevention, uh, early diagnostics, uh, particularly for chronic disease uh, in a nutshell there as well. Uh, Jan Willem, you talk about fixing the, 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 the problem before the next crisis uh, arrives. So in reality, we're, we're constantly in slow motion crisis, antimicrobial resistance, cancer, for example, obesity, you know, just to, to name uh, three headliners. 
And you know, we're always in this slow motion crisis. So you know, the early diagnostics and the digital dimension that we see emerging on the commercial side of the, of the market as well, do you think this is going to be a, a, a tipping point transformation in terms of how individual patients, how individual citizens, consumers see their part, their responsibility in healthcare and you to test early colon cancer, for example, you, the, these, these kind of things. Is there a, a, a step change about to happen because of digital technology? Yes, there is. And, and I must say that the digital health softened the blow of the pandemic in those countries that had the ability to very quickly introduce telehealth or very quickly introduce uh, cloud-based systems where people could exchange data because people didn't want to touch each other. They had to go and exchange data about each other so that they could provide care. And so if we see how fast telehealth took up and how fast artificial intelligence has developed during COVID, uh, we can only see that that, that has uh, helped to change the way we deliver services to patients. Now, what Jenny already said, that if you look at the healthcare system, you've got you know, governance and finance and your workforce and technology, but that all has to be used to deliver healthcare in a different way. And as I said in my first intervention, distributed healthcare organized around the patient is the future not the centralized hospitals that we are now used to. So if we're going to move that to the patients, we're going to be able to engage with the patients uh, in a more longitudinal way because we organize the data around them, organize the care uh, organizations, whether that is in primary care, secondary care, specialist care, but we can only do that if we digitize it. But for that to happen, we need to solve a couple of uh, points. First of all, our data in Europe is not interoperable. It's caught in silos and we cannot unlock the value. And there we need to orchestrating power of the European Commission to help us set the standards. The way we weigh somebody, you know, kilograms, right, in the Netherlands is different than we may weigh it in Greece. You know, uh, we may weigh it in grams, in Greece they may weigh it in kilograms, somebody may weigh it in, in the morning or in the afternoon with clothes, pregnant, not pregnant. There are different ways of putting down weight into an IT system. And so if we don't get that semantic interoperability so the systems know from each other what we mean by weight, what we mean by blood pressure, what we mean by oxygen, what we mean by the cancers that we're trying to treat, then we're going to not be able to use digitization and the benefits. So if we have that framework, that data structure and that infrastructure that is orchestrated by the government, then we can start to unlock the value of data in service delivery. We can seamlessly connect different service organizations around the patient and take out the waste. And let's not forget 30% of healthcare is waste. Um, and if we then continue, we can continue to unlock uh, the data, especially in the future with artificial intelligence, to get better applications for the patients to take care of their own healthcare along their life cycle. And I think that is where uh, we can really start to change uh, uh, healthcare delivery, improve health outcomes for everyone, including the chronically ill, at a lower cost to society. And I think that's a good prospect, but the orchestration uh, and the leading role of the governments uh, to make this happen is really, really important. Uh, just to finish off with one, one step, uh, we, we, with the Future Health Index, what we did, we measured with the CEOs of different hospitals around the world, their willingness to invest in IT, their willingness to invest in AI and telehealth. More than 80% said in the next three years, I have to make those investments. I've got to do that. If everybody does that in their own standard, in their own silos, we will continue to lock up data for the next decade. That's why it's so important to take a step back, 
understand now how we're going to design that resilient system, the, the digital architecture, before we spend the billions in the wrong way. Okay, thank you. I'm going to bring Wolf going in just a moment on that. Uh, you wanted to respond also. Go ahead. Thank you, Brian. And uh, this will be my last intervention, even though I want. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I think there's a delay on the line. Let's go ahead. I know you have to leave shortly. Can you hear so, me? Uh, go ahead. Yes, perfectly. Okay, I'm so sorry it's a delay on the line. Uh, and then I will speak slowly instead. Um, I, I'm so sorry this will need to be my last intervention in this very important the dialogue and it has been so interesting and from what uh, Jan Wilhelm said the, the the last intervention I would really like to talk more about that I think this is the future in many ways uh, but I would like to say a few words on the agencies um, because I think they need to be better prepared and have uh, the muscles, the economic muscles to be better prepared. And I also think a new agency, HERA, should be constructed. Uh, I'm not happy, as I mentioned before, that the Commission want to have HERA as an internal apartment in the in the Commission, a DJ or something. I think it should be an agency of its own. I think we should really use a new HERA to better coordinate ourselves in the European Union and make sure the different actors who can help out will do so to make sure that we always have the vaccine needed, that we at least have the, the preparedness to have the vaccine needed for tackling future variants, COVID, also future pandemics. I also, also think Oh, I see. I have problems. Sorry. It's I have fine. Problems you, we can hear you. You, you can't can hear, hear me now. No. We can hear you. Okay. Yes. Let's go. Let's move to uh, Wolfgang first, and then we'll go to uh, and to Janis. I think we've lost Jette, who's going to depart anyway. Wolfgang, I, I know you want to respond to this. But just in we terms of what, use uh, yeah, EMA oh. to have safe uh, vaccines for the future, and that okay, it is a connection problem. I'm so sorry. It was lovely to join this panel. I will next time develop the things I wanted to say. Uh, sorry. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Wolfgang, in terms of uh, the integrative data, which uh, Jan Willem was discussing as well, is this going to, is the health transformation, digital transformation that, that you spoke about at the beginning as well, is this going to be a data-driven process as well? Because you know, it's very hard to see how we align healthcare systems, how we align the data, how we do diagnostics without a harmonized approach to this. Wolfgang. It would definitely be good. I think it was very well explained uh, by Jan Willem uh, how the how the reality already looks like and what the what the shortcomings are. I think the uh, the interoperability is a big problem in uh, in many areas, and I do think that uh, at least uh, through the different uh, initiatives, also at the European level, um, there will be an extra push uh, to get uh, this done uh, in a way as to uh, as to end up uh, with. Uh, modern solutions for uh, healthcare 
and for uh, delivery of healthcare, which is uh, at the end of the day um, the important part. Um, but um, uh, um, obviously, it is not it is not a, a simple process uh, in to develop uh, and to make uh, data interoperable and to keep them safe at the same time. Um, we have a complex setup here in the European Union where uh, uh, many different systems exist. But at the end of the day, uh, there will be no way uh, um, uh, will be no way out of that uh, out of that uh, process. So. Um, I fully agree that uh, uh, more needs to be invested into it, not just in terms of budgets, but also in terms of uh, in terms of uh, in in terms of driving innovation to a point that we reach uh, really uh, modern healthcare delivery. Uh, what we have seen um, during the pandemic, and this is just just a, a, perhaps an anecdotal example, is uh, that data are still um, in, in, in certain areas. Data are still shared by um, uh, by by faxes. I even didn't know that fax machines exist. So that is uh, still a reality, and I think uh, that is one of the one of these anecdotal examples that shows uh, that uh, uh, there must be a lot of investments into it, uh, not just on the regulatory side, but also on the research side and uh, on the on the implementation side. And that's something that needs to be done uh, uh, with the member states and ideally uh, together at EU level. Just in terms of that, I, I share your concern that people are still using faxes in, in this day and age as well. I, and uh, in, in the United States, they're still paying by checks, which I find incredible. I don't think we've anybody in Europe signed a check in the last 10 years. The, the approach that comes to us, can you tie European Union funding to digital transformation uh, in, in a way that it was strong enough to um, nudge uh, this data harmonization? I mean, there's, okay. different, uh, there's different instruments available to, uh, to support that uh, also from the, from the financial support side, yes. Okay, thank you. Yanis, then I'm going to bring in again. Yanis, okay, thank you. Yanis. Also, uh, this will be my last intervention as well. I would okay. like to raise two issues. In, in our opinion, the attempt to make our health systems resilient needs to go head in hand with the structural, structural involvement of civil society in the systems. Therefore, not only resilience, but resilience with participation. Another issue I would like to raise is patients' rights. Patients' rights are very important. And uh, I heard uh, one speaker earlier, one colleague saying that um, for the industry, the government, etc., to be at the table. At the table, we need to have, as I said, civil society organizations, patients organizations, because we have seen what has happened and what is happening during the pandemic. But especially at the beginning, and I want to to emphasize this, so many lives were, were lost 
were either in institutions or in home cares for the elderly or in people living alone at home without any social support. And that's why I said earlier that the pandemic found the public health systems and the social services after many years of austerity, of underinvestment, underspending. And if that is to be the case, no matter what we say about data, about making stronger EMA or the ECDC or about the new agency here that of course has to be independent and stronger, if we do not have the political will to put the life of our citizens before anything else, then our health systems will not be inclusive and will not be resilient. Thank you. Yanis, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I appreciate you, you have another meeting to go to now. Thank you. We'll speak again. Genya. Thank you. Yeah, I don't want to. You're welcome. Uh, Genya, part of what Yanis uh, is talking about here in terms of in inclusivity, um, the different strands of society, uh, patients' rights, and the inclusiveness of civil society as well. This has got to be part of uh, uh, the, the information side, the communications approach that's necessary to build uh, a more resilient health system. I don't want to labor too much on disinformation, but I think it's worth mentioning uh, a little bit as well. So, you, Genya, when you look at the disinformation that, that, that COVID-19 has produced, often deliberately by state actors to destabilize uh, Western democracy, uh, but not just uh, this. So how do we rebuild trust in the health process, in health professionals, in uh, good science as a means to establish the other mechanisms that we know can deliver uh, better health care, like digitalization, like uh, improvements in diet and, and uh, lifestyle changes? How do, we, how do we build confidence in that system? What do you see at a global level? I love this question. And we have seen consistently in all parts of the world that the efforts at the community level are the ones that can change people's hearts and minds when it comes to not only uh, understanding and in many cases accepting the COVID-19 vaccine, but also to be able to change the way that uh, people understand the role of nutrition and good food, exercise, those kind of preventative measures. And I was actually just reading this morning about uh, community in Mississippi, which is a rural area of the United States that I'm originally from, where the community members have mobilized together to change the way that school lunches are delivered to children in uh, these rural parts of the country to make them more healthy because the incidences of diabetes in children are skyrocketing. And we've seen over and over again that it's the community workers, it's those trusted voices within the community that are able to share information and to spend the time 
that they need to spend with populations to help understand, um, listen to concerns. And so the tension, I think, is when you have a, a large scale health crisis like the one that we're in with COVID-19, where a massive change needs to happen if you're thinking about vaccination very quickly, and what are the levers in which to do that? And the tension does definitely exist between governmental um, mandates, governmental action, but then also realizing that um, the, the trust and the understanding comes from the community level, your community practitioner, um, your, your general practitioner, um, your church members, your family. And so that is really back to Ionis's point, I think is, is, is really critical, is understanding that the avenues for influence um, are, are really different than sometimes we, uh, we, we set forth and immediately trying to mobilize around these big tables um, around in government. So I, I completely support the point of making sure that the patients and those in the community are, are with us. Um, and I really think that that is an incredibly important lever of influence and trust building. Thank you. Iskra, I think what Genyo just described is essentially what you said out earlier in your three points, you know, a clear shared objective set in the community, trust with those that you identify with and it's not from large organizations which are far away from the individual citizen, individual patient, and uh, prevention, sort of uh, identifying signs of disease early and trying, in this case, as Genyo mentioned with uh, children, prevent uh, chronic illness from uh, developing uh, to begin with. So, you know, when we when we're dealing with the the resilient healthcare system, do we need to uh, take a, a breath and and plan our strategy more carefully with the, these dynamics in mind? Is that it shouldn't be? Of course, there must be a top down approach, uh, but that the implementation of this happens at a grassroots level rather than uh, a community level uh, at the global side. Yeah, I, I think that's a very, very fair comment. I, I, I but I, I believe there are there is a way to do it both ways. I think there is a strategy that can be thinked in the whatever you call global or or, or a high level, if you want. Uh, but there is also a, a clear need that if you really want to influence and engage and bring community and 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 broad population, we need to make sure that there is this. A field base, if you want, or, or the, the support and understanding on the ground. And if I can just give you one example of, of that, because I think it's 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 quite important and it's really picture what you just said in this partnership for resilience and uh, for a sustainable and resilience healthcare system. We were basically building the framework with the partners, but then in order to implement that framework and to really understand how that framework can actually help the hurdles in each and every market, we actually tested them in eight pilot countries where they really looked what does it mean for their a local community for their hospitals and the, and the, and the, and the healthcare practitioner, which is at the end of the day, what makes the strategy work or not. Thank you. Wolfgang, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the health union package and HERA as well. Uh, you know, for those who may not be so familiar with HERA and the emergency response uh, planning that uh, we see coming on the radar, can you explain a little bit about this and uh, then the health uh, union package, what this means for, for Europe? Yes, of course. Um, I try to be uh, concise because that could be long. 
a long lecture here. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, what happened is that we reacted uh, basically already during the pandemic uh, last year by coming up with a proposal for the health union uh, consisting of uh, of, certain, of several elements. One was strengthening the mandate of the ECDC, of the uh, European Medicines Agency, as well as uh, uh, changing and uh, uh, uplifting a, a regulation um, that uh, figures out the audit that that that, uh, that comes up with uh, the coordination of uh, of preparedness and response to uh, cross-border health threats. Uh, so uh, that would be mainly, obviously, uh, infectious diseases, and then the pharmaceutical strategy that uh, I already uh, mentioned before. In the meantime, there were other papers uh, uh, coming out as well that work into uh, certain directions, like for example. Uh, um, um, making sure that that therapeutics uh, ideally now for COVID-19 but uh, perhaps also in the future to other uh, diseases are available uh, when they need to be available. So that is basically uh, the framework. Um, one of the elements, uh, one of the tangible elements is now the creation of the uh, Health Emergency uh, Preparedness and Response Authority, uh, HERA, and uh, this is one of, uh, it's not a single element but it's really embedded here into that uh, stronger or strengthened uh, EU health security uh, uh, framework. The mission of HERA is to address serious cross-border health threats. And that is uh, being done in an all-threat approach. That means it's not just uh, um, infectious diseases, but also chemical, biological, or environmental um, uh, threats, plus other threats uh, of all kinds of uh, nature. And the idea is relatively simple to make sure that uh, uh, that uh, if there are vulnerabilities and strategic dependencies um, for the development, for the production, for the procurement, perhaps also for the stockpiling uh, and distribution of medical countermeasures exist, the HERA takes care of overcoming these. Uh, but this is done in a full end-to-end -end approach. So it starts with a threat assessment and intelligence gathering function. It goes to research and development capacities, production capacities, procurement stockpiling and also uh, in, in enlarging uh, the knowledge base uh, 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 across the EU uh, on how to deal and how to make available um, um, uh, medical countermeasures uh, uh, that could act on uh, a serious cross-border health threats. So just two more, uh, just two more lines. Um, obviously now what does this mean uh, without reading all of these papers? Uh, some of the concrete examples how it has you how the EU, European Health Union would translate uh, into advantages also for the uh, healthcare sectors, but also uh, obviously for the citizens that uh, would seek uh, uh, for medical care. Uh, that is, uh, there's a couple of activities covering, for example, tackling shortages of medicines and medical devices. We have seen that this was a huge problem uh, uh, throughout the whole of the last year and partially still is when it comes to uh, some of the modern uh, uh, products which are developed uh, 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 to treat uh, COVID-19. Uh, it is about uh, facilitating development of potential treatments and vaccines so that they're uh, available for all people sooner, uh, as we have seen it, even faster as we've seen it uh, throughout the last year. It's also about providing medical staff uh, with the right skills for health emergencies and preparedness um, uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, that uh, the, the respective search capacities uh, are also there in case of need. It's about monitoring additional health system indicators, uh, such as intensive care capacities 
or medical okay. staff availability, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's many, many, many points uh, that, uh, which I, are- I wonder, Bilden, thank you, Will. I want to bring exactly on that, just to bring in uh, Jan Willem and also Iskra. Iskra first, just on, on this, um, you know, the, Europe, in the, if we look at defense, we're talking much more about sovereignty, about making sure that we have our own defense capacity because of unreliable partners uh, globally, not to, to single out anyone in particular. And that we have these uh, different dimensions, which before we kind of took for granted that we would always have a supply chain. And now, you know, vaccines was just one example, but things like uh, plasma, you know, Europe depends uh, hugely on the United States for plasma supply, uh, which is so critical to, to many uh, different treatments in Europe as well. You know, when you, when you look at the, the global uh, supply chain, Iskra, you do you do you feel comfortable with the way this is organized in terms of how Europe should view its health resilience, or should Europe be much more focused on standalone solutions and and uh, sovereignty? Is that even possible today? Yeah, so I, I guess question is maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question, but from from my perspective or from the from the perspective of the global uh, uh, company, uh, probably is not fully feasible, and I'm I'm not sure if there is a way to actually do that. I mean, when when we look at the supply chains and we look at it from the global perspective and i think uh, 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 making sure that we are able to to ensure the global partnership or the global commitment with the different partners that will then serve europe as well as any other part of the globe is probably the right way to go Having said that, I mean, the COVID crisis and the different political decisions definitely show that that sometimes can be under risk. And this is definitely a part of this, what we call resilience of the healthcare system. And I do hope that the, 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 the new strategy, European uh, Commission and Parliament are working it, as well as HERA, as an as a agency that needs to kind of uh, be on the forefront of that, uh, can solve to some extent. But I do believe at the end of the day, we all need to rely on, the, on our global partners and making sure that we are able to keep the global supply chain up and running, no matter of the crisis. And we all have the responsibility in doing so. Thank you. I'm going to come at the end, uh, Will, in just a second. We just encourage you to send in your questions now. We're going to go to questions in just a moment. So please uh, don't hesitate any longer. We have a few there. I'm going to bring those to the panel in just a moment. But uh, yeah, Will, when uh, I'm looking at different policy uh, perspectives, uh, I kind of test that I sometimes deploy is uh, what would Amazon do? You can apply it to uh, migration, all sorts of situations to kind of measure. But, you know, in this, if you put it in the health context as well, and you take out the, the emotional side of the, the political uh, dimensions, and you look in terms of units and logistics, you know, what would Amazon do? How do we, how do we deal with stockpiling and the availability of technology to make some of uh, our problems uh, more streamlined in terms of outcomes and solutions? Yeah, so I think stockpiling is a part of a solution of having availability to essential medical equipment. And at the beginning of the crisis, everybody was screaming for ventilators, so produce more ventilators. And and what we had to do is we had to ramp up production eight times more, eight eightfold production increase in four months. And the only way we could do that is by keeping supply chains open. Uh, stuff was coming from Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Germany, US, all of that necessary to put into a device. Now, 
after the crisis, we, we thought, she said, okay, is, was that the smartest way of organizing our supply chain? Well, if the supply chain stayed open, yes, but there were some critical elements where we said, well, maybe we should have some dual sourcing, which Amazon would also do. Uh, so to improve the resilience of the supply chain in case part of the world closes up. Uh, but then for other stuff that you think you're going to need in a crisis, yes, it's useful to stockpile. I think paracetamols are going to be probably necessary during whatever the next pandemic is or the next outbreak is. But we're not quite sure if you need ventilators for the next pandemic or the next healthcare crisis. You probably do need ICU capacity for the next crisis. So you got to be very limited in what you can, uh, what you're going to stockpile. And then if you're going to stockpile it, is a country able to afford setting up a stockpile and maintaining it? After the terrorist attacks in London about 10 years ago, there was a stockpile of mobile hospitals to, to, so that in the future, when another terrorist attack could happen, they will be able to build those hospitals very quickly close to where the attack was. After eight years that contract expired, they demolished the mobile hospitals. Two years later, COVID broke out and they didn't have the hospitals. So at a national level, you probably can never have the right stockpile. You can never afford to have the right stockpile for that one scenario that you've planned. So you need to have a broad scope Make sure that the stuff can stay available for the stuff that you're not sure will be available. Share it. We've suggested that you don't, you don't need a physical stockpile. What you want is you want to make sure you want to guaranteed access, tested, stress tested in certain scenarios and share it in as big as possible a region. That's what the European Commission is now doing. Um, that is what the United Nations is doing, that the United States is doing. But we should also build in some solidarity in this. Are we able, for example, to maintain stockpiles for the European Union that, for example, we could also uh, deploy and make available to the ones that are left behind, some of the developing countries as part of our international development cooperation? And then I think as part of a more integrated supply chain and understanding our future risks, uh, we can have uh, availability secured at much lower cost than just putting everything in a warehouse. Thank you. Excellent points. And uh, we'll kind of respond to that just before we take some questions. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's great. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. I think that's uh, that's all very, uh, very, this is a very good point. Uh, I mean, and we should not forget stockpiling is something, it sounds uh, it sounds simple, but I mean, it's very complicated. And at the end of the day, when you ask what would Amazon do about it, uh, I think there is certainly a great on, 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 very, on, on many, many things, but uh, before you put something to pass out, you need to have it. And um, the uh, global supply chain management, I think that is the complex part behind, or the first part that needs to be sorted out for critical items uh, before we come to stockpiling. And then uh, obviously stockpiling comes with, uh, with, a, with a high level of complexity and with a high level of costs, but we have learned uh, that uh, for certain elements, uh, stockpiling makes sense uh, and uh, reserving certain capacities also for the production of these critical elements uh, makes sense. And that's what we are looking at. So I'm very grateful that uh, Jan Willem uh, brought up this point, but uh, we all have to work uh, on these global supply chain management uh, systems for critical items. Um, and that can be done only at a global level. And that is why HERA now uh, is one of the elements uh, in that architecture. There is many other likewise uh, agencies. I mean, Bada is mentioned all the time, but uh, also at member state level, uh, there are activities going on uh, in that sense. And uh, I do hope that we, uh, at least on this, on the, in this sector, draw the right lessons here from the uh, COVID-19 uh, 
uh, uh, crisis uh, and pandemic, and uh, at least we are prepared for that. Thank you. We have a couple of questions on telemedicine, so let's go to that. Uh, from Trajan, he asks, says, diseases, uh, from the Clinic of Pulmonary Diseases, um, could telemedicine be the basis for a European uh, health system? Wolfgang first, could, uh, how do you see telemedicine in the context of the health union? And telemedicine, uh, okay, the, the usual disclaimer, uh, um, a provision of health uh, of healthcare as a member states, as a member states competence, but obviously, I mean, telemedicine is already, uh, is already reality. And uh, um, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in the dynamic setting of, uh, of digital transformation uh, will be, uh, will be uh, broadened into many other uh, areas that includes also a response to uh, uh, to uh, cross-border head threats. I'm uh, pretty convinced that uh, this will speed up now in the next couple of years. Thank you. Question for Jan Willem. When talking about moving healthcare over to the patient side, especially with telehealth, what steps are made and is uh, Philips uh, taking to ensure data safety and confidentiality? Maybe not exactly yes. specialism. Can you answer that? No, it's, it's, uh, clearly, uh, you know, patients are not going to trust a digital system if they don't are if they're not absolutely certain that we're treating the information uh, in a safe and secure way and that nobody can actually hack into it and copy it uh, we know that health data is the most valuable data in the world it's much more valuable than for example financial data um, so we got to be really it's the most so if it's the most valuable data we got to be able to protect it and give that confidence so the gdpr offers a great framework uh, and and the national uh, the, the the information security directive, so and 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 the other cybersecurity standards that are out there in the collaboration amongst the OECD to help standardize security, uh, because security is as strong as its weakest link. Um, um, so our biggest challenge is there are so many different interpretations of security and data protection across Europe. It's a patchwork. And it's very difficult for hospitals to control that and for regions or cities even like in germany uh that we're create that we are creating through all of that patchwork um weaknesses and by standardizing and by harmonizing some of those requirements on security on privacy on data portability we're actually making it more transparent at the european level therefore easier for the enforcers to uh, to maintain and more secure so we are working on that uh like all players. We're also working that in the context of Gaia-X, uh, the big initiative that was initially launched by the by Germany and France, but now also supported by Spain and Italy and Finland and the Netherlands and others, to create that credible, that trusted infrastructure on how to deal with data, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in education or mobility or uh, financing, so that people can have the confidence uh, that whatever data they put in the cloud into telemedicine is managed uh, in accordance with European standards and safe and secure. Thank you. Uh, we have a comment here from Mike uh, Tremblay. Uh, Mike says the COVID response required healthcare systems to suspend or modify a lot of regulations. It seems uh, to be that regulation has shown to hamper resilience. Um, I would take some issue with that. Anybody want to comment on this? And uh, he was on to say the evidence is that what is done as uh, medicines regulation, regulation professionals are almost like cartels. Uh, to be fair, Mike, I don't really see how we have uh, standards in the healthcare and quality of our systems without regulation. So 
Um, if anyone wants to comment on that, you're welcome to. Julia Bosey uh, says, about non-state actors' engagement, uh, how do we decide which actors should uh, be able to comment and how to deal with the legitimacy problem non-state actors are not democratically elected? Maybe someone wants to pick up on how we deal with uh, the voice of authority, if you want to put it that way. Um, let's see. Let's go back to Genya and uh, let's talk about the workforce as well, Genya. The role of the workforce in, in uh, health planning and uh, in you know, health management generally in crisis and non-crisis times, how do you see that? We hear tremendous um, focus on needing to be able to understand what we're headed towards in terms of the future and the talent um, and skills that are needed to get us there. I will draw on it not only from the health delivery system, but also what we saw happening with and continues to happen with the manufacture of uh, vaccines, both the first generation and some of the more uh, newer vaccines built on mRNA platforms. The, the consistent feedback that we get is, uh, you know, we are able to only create, and I think this goes back to the point of, of um, from Wolfgang, you can only stockpile what you've created. And so the creation of the, the, uh, the countermeasures, the equipment, and then the delivery of those is an incredible uh, piece that I think is, we should not forget, we should not lose sight of that. And so in terms of building the capacity to be prepared with, uh, with the right countermeasures, with the right treatments, uh, understanding what is the talent um, and the skills that's going to be necessary to to do that to swing into action is incredibly important. So I just wanted to highlight and stress the the points around workforce planning, and uh, paying very close and strategic attention to those skills that will be needed. I think in terms of the um, the workforce, that is one of the five areas of evaluation under the framework for the Partnership on Health System Sustainability and resilience that the World Economic Forum is working on. And so that is a, a critical piece that um, this initiative is, is looking at when we go and work with local partners on the ground to look at healthcare systems in a variety of different countries. We've done eight so far, um, plan to add another 12 in the coming months. So looking at that, uh, the capacity of workforces, where they are located, what they are trained to do, um, the attrition that's happening um, due to mental health issues and burnout is, is very critical. So my main point there was to say that um, that issue of workforce preparation and talent mapping is exceptionally important and should not be neglected. Okay. Again, okay, just on exactly this point as well, you know, it, should it just be the workforce or should it be the whole society approach as well? For example, you know, when we're all kids, we're taught about first aid and your know, basic idea of how to, how to uh, stop things bleeding and, and what happens with concussion. But you, know, Sweden, for example, has led out a, a very uh, coherent approach to civil response dealing with communication, dealing with how to oxygenate air or water, which has been uh, stagnant for some time, things like this, basic approaches to long-term survival in a, a, a society which is diminished either by, by uh, war, biological attack, or as we're facing now, a pandemic. Latvia has a 72-hour uh, response time uh, where you have to stand on your own uh, without any support from, from uh, the government in the event of an attack or, or a biological uh, incident, something like this as well. So, you know, and if you look at Israel, Israel, everybody in, in society is a highly militarized society, but 
you know, they have all basic skills, the communication, the command structure there. Are these, uh, is there a civil approach which we need to integrate into healthcare planning where the whole of society knows how to respond in different dimensions? Are we missing this as a, an element of, of our healthcare response, Kenya? That is a really provocative and, and very interesting question. And my personal view on that would be, of course, we should all be prepared and equipped with some basic skills for survival. Um, you know, where those skills come from is uh, open. I, you've referenced a couple of different countries who have different uh, structures around education and training, whether it be through uh, military service or whether it be through you know, primary education, something that's included in every curriculum. I think that this has been brought to the forefront, and I would turn it over to my colleagues who are, are based in, in Europe, but the recent uh, floods and storms that happened in some parts of Europe, and the question became of what was you know, how are we preparing citizens to be able to respond and take care of themselves in climate emergencies? So I think the question is also germane to how do we equip citizens to be able to take care of and respond in other health-related crises? The, the example of the hospitals um, and the, the ability to erect mobile hospitals in response to terrorist attacks was just brought up. So, you know, there's also been a lot of training and thinking when, um, about how to equip citizens to be able to respond to those events. So this constant um, thinking through of what's the threat, um, what are the threats, what are the crises, and how to equip citizens with those skills is something that I know many people work on. Thank you. Uh, Jan Willem, on skills as well, how do you, how do you see the skills dimension in the healthcare uh, planning? So it's what we've seen during COVID is that a lot of uh, health workers were burned out. Uh, that motivation was lacking and that they couldn't cope with all the overload of data and not having the right skills and not having the right tools. So it's so important to have the right motivation of your staff and of your health workers at all levels. Um, a resilient healthcare system is a learning healthcare system. Uh, it's learning how to prepare, learning how to adapt, learning how to respond uh, to outbreaks, to, to changes. And that means, uh, you know, CEOs of hospitals also see we need to invest more in continuously teach uh, our workforce because if they learn and if they feel that they're better equipped to deal with the healthcare challenges, they stay more motivated and they'll stay in the job and they can also avoid burnout. Uh, so it, it, it works on all sides. Now, what we're seeing is that if you're trying to reorganize healthcare around the patient, so moving out of the hospital more towards in the community, you need different skills. You need maybe a complete new cadre of health workers. So we'll need to start uh, changing the skills of our health workers because they need to work in different settings and deliver care differently. The other thing we see is that healthcare has become more collaborative. It's not the single doctor or the single expert who can decide on the diagnostics and the treatment of a patient. But there's an awful lot of data to actually help a specialist to come to a diagnosis or a treatment coming from different sites, from, you know, from pathology, from uh, diagnostics imaging, from uh, uh, activities, the sports activities, physiotherapy, from uh, mental health, and to put all of that data together and to turn it into something that generates knowledge also requires, that enables collaboration. So we can have the physiotherapist and the cardiologist and uh, the mental health uh, expert and the hypertension expert and the pathologist working together because collaborative tools are created, digital tools. So suddenly we're starting to see people investing more in teamwork. You see that, for example, in cut labs, more teamwork. 
you see that in the operating theaters, the more teamwork, less hierarchy. So we'll need to, uh, that, that means that uh, we're gonna get more collaborative work, especially if we're starting to work across different settings, not only in the hospital, but also in the community and the hospital and the GP working together. Uh, we're gonna use more digital skills. And if we do that, we can probably organize work in such a way that it's become more meaningful, more motivating, uh, more learning for the workforce. And hopefully we'll be able to do something about the more than 50% burnout rate that we see in some professions in the healthcare sector. Um, so yes, skilling essential because without it, it's, it's a, let's not forget, healthcare is a high tech for high touch business. It's high touch, it's people to people, skin to skin that we're trying to facilitate. Technology will help that. And if you don't have the right skills to actually master that technology and, and, and enable that skin to skin talk again, uh, contact, um, the healthcare system crumbles. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. And we're going to wrap up in just a moment. Uh, but before we do, uh, a phrase used earlier, Iskra, I liked was to reimagine the future of uh, health as well. Uh, just a, a quick comment on this. To reimagine the future of health requires real leadership. And in terms of the leadership uh, for the European Union's health, health, you know, clearly the, the commission we can point to as well. But it takes a lot to convince people to buy into this as well. Where do you see uh, global and European uh, health leadership coming from? Back to the to the topic on the partnership, the global and European leadership is coming from the government, you know, being the European Commission, but also being the national governments who need to take their part of responsibility, if you want. It comes from academia and researchers because we need the data and we need the science behind to make sure that we have the transparency and arguments to bring people together. And we definitely need <coughs> the private sector that will be able to help to drive this uh, this towards and to make this happen at the end of the day. So I don't think that we can really reimagine the the the, the future of healthcare if we not if we are not able to put all these stakeholders together. And underlying that, without the technology, and you know, you may look at the startups or different expertise that different companies, both in public and private sectors, has. But that would be the fourth pillar that would be absolutely necessary. To, to have a, a different and better future for the healthcare. Nicely done. Thank you so much. Let's, let's go to our concluding remarks. Wolfgang, let's uh, kick off with you with uh, 45 seconds each. Yeah, I think uh, we've touched on, 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 on many things. What is coming out of this uh, discussion, at least for me, is uh, that we see that preparedness is nothing that comes for free. Preparedness is a complex uh, approach. Preparedness needs um, many, many uh, uh, players across different sectors, and uh, preparedness needs uh, proper planning and implementation. Uh, and at the end of the day, obviously, also proper budgeting. And I do hope uh, that uh, we, at least with HERA, we put in a little, uh, a little element uh, into that discussion and do hope that this will be uh, developed uh, across the globe so to be better prepared uh, and to be better prepared in the sense uh, for future uh, health emergencies and uh, on the side also contribute uh, to uh, strengthen uh, health systems across the globe. Thank you. Thank you, Wolfgang. Kenya. So we are really fond these days of saying that healthcare is everybody's business, and I truly believe that it is. And I think that message is definitely resonating far beyond the health and healthcare industry and leaders that um, are far 
uh, removed or, or may not have traditionally focused on health and healthcare. With that realization comes also the need to know that if we're going to build partnerships and make investments, that we are doing it smartly and that it's based on evidence. And so at the World Economic Forum, we are pleased not only to be working on this partnership on health systems, sustainability and resilience to gather some of that evidence um, in a more localized way, but to be able to, to bring that up to the global level to provide pointers and guidance on where particular uh, investments and partnerships need to be directed in order to strengthen the ability of these systems to respond. So an evidence-based approach is very important um, to guide, guide these partnerships and actually make good on what I think everyone is starting to understand and to be able to capitalize on the interest and the commitment um, and the passion that's coming from far beyond healthcare to make those investments. Because I think everybody at this point realizes that if your health and healthcare systems do not work, you have then all of these different trickle down effects into economy and society and recovery and resilience will not be possible. So we are proud to be there in that space of providing the platform for those partnerships and that evidence generation. Thank you, Genya. Iskra. Yeah, let me at the end uh, reiterate that um, after the COVID-19 crisis, I believe you all agree that health should not be seen any longer as, as a cost that needs to be minimized, but as a real strategic and national asset that should have the appropriate investment. And I do believe that pandemic really show us clearly that the economic growth and the population health are intrinsically linked and that without securing the health of the citizens, governments will not really be able to secure long-lasting economic prosperity. By having that knowledge and that experience, I do believe we need all to make sure that we, we, we come together and, and do our part in making the healthcare systems of the future more sustainable and more resilient. And I hope this panel demonstrated that today very, very clearly. Thanks again for the invite and thanks for all the, the great uh, insights we heard today. Thank you, Iskra. Last word, Jan Willem. Thanks. I, I think we have collectively the innovative strengths and the will, willingness to work in partnership. And, and on top of that, if we really embrace digitization, uh, we have what it takes to transform the healthcare system into a resilient healthcare system, um, and and we must. And if we if we do plan that radical uh, that resilient healthcare system, if you like fixing the roof, as I said uh, earlier, um, we do need the orchestration of the governments. If you like the state actors, as was mentioned in the questions, it's not the non-state actors; they can contribute. It's the state actors that decide, the state actors that orchestrate. And if they don't do that, uh, we might end up with a Babylonian confusion. And that's not what we want. Thank you. Thank you to all our panelists today, Wolfgang, Jutta, Janis, Genya, Iskra, and Jan Willem for a really a thorough discussion. It's a huge topic. I think we did well to navigate through uh, some of these key issues today. Also to our Euractive uh, production team as well in the studio, uh, Zoran and Malta and uh, Evi, and also to Matea, uh, who is in the, the production uh, team as well. To Phillips, thank you for your support. And to our audience, thanks so much for your questions and for your attention today. I wish you a good day. I'm Brian McGuire. <laughs>